Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. As folks know, I'm uh, trying to shake things up a little bit here uh, on, in Expanding Mind land. Um, going to be setting up a Patreon at some point, uh, try to get a little more revenue, try to get a little more action, as they say. Um, and along those lines, uh, I wanted to uh, remind folks that it's very helpful to post positive reviews or just reviews. It can be negative too, but I suppose that if you're going to bother to do it, you're probably going to say something nice unless you really hate it. Some people really hate stuff out there. Uh, but, uh, you know, iTunes is a great place to do it. And along those lines, I wanted to read uh, two pieces of feedback I got recently. One was a, a new uh, iTunes review. Uh, which I liked, uh, Eric's unique vision of conversations, not just interviews around the cultures of consciousness, would be the best of its kind if Expanding Mind weren't the only one of its kind. I love that. I love to hear that. I really try to do something singular here, and I do think uh, I, I bridge bridges and look in uh, nooks and crannies from uh, uh, a singular uh, point of view. One other thing uh, that this, uh, this poster mentioned is that the uh, creative, well-spoken guests are not all white men. And, you know, the thing is, and I'm going to be just t- completely transparent here, it's the easiest thing in the world to talk to a white guy every week. And there's a lot of reasons you go into that, my own personal psychology, the kind of stuff I'm interested in, the way books work, the way things happen. Uh, It doesn't mean there's not tons of everybody else I want to talk to. So just to say that it requires uh, effort to not fall into the easy habitual patterns that uh, as a white, straight white guy, I grow up in, you know, expectations, just comfort, ease of uh, interaction, and again, you know, a lot of the things that I'm interested in have a lot of folks who are white guys, uh, way, you know, spewing off about it, psychedelics, uh, meditation, uh, technology, you know, hacker geek stuff. Um, and so I'm really committed to that uh, on the show. I was also chuffed. That's, what, that's a Britishism. I was chuffed to get a nice little note from Michael Pollan, who if you are avid listeners we had on the show, uh, I think about like last uh, July, um, and he had read a, uh, a, a kind of l- transcribed lecture that became more of an essay that I submitted to, uh, or that, that was published in a book called DMT Dialogues that came out last year that was the result of a, a gathering uh, at a, a, a a lordly estate uh, in England called Tyringham Hall, uh, a very strange, very marvelous gathering. And uh, he had this to say about my essay in there. Just read DMT dialogues on a long flight and your talk stood out both as both the most provocative and most sane. Now that is a compliment. You're so more comfortable with uncertainty than anyone else I've met in this space and your piece, piece was a breath of fresh air. Uh, that comfort with uncertainty, the, 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 the tango with the unknown, with ambiguity, the cultivation of what John Keats called negative capability, which he defined as the, I'm going to paraphrase, the ability to be in the midst of vexations and obscurities without an irritable reaching after fact or reason. That is a key existential element and intellectual position 
that I am deeply devoted to and that is part of what this podcast is about. It's not just a, a trickster dodge. I think it's actually a uh, a, 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 a ticket to sanity, uh, and particularly in our current conditions, but only a provocative sanity, not a boring, flat uh, sanity. So along the lines of sanity, it keep me sane doing this uh, bit of a hamster wheel here, you know, doing this every week. But uh, I got to get a little more engaged with something fresh. And so what I'm going to do is I mentioned I was going to do last uh, fall, uh, regularly do a solo show. But I only did one and then I didn't do one all fall because it's fun to talk to people and you want to talk to them more and it just keeps happening. So I kept booking guests, didn't get around to it. But I realized is that I put a lot of energy into this thing. And a lot of that is reading books. I read the whole book. I actually read the book. This is not true for interviewers and podcasters uh, very much in a lot of ways. Um, uh, or they read superficially. It's hard to tell uh, wh- what. Or they read the press release or they listen to another podcast interview. But I read the book. I'm a book guy. Uh, but that means I read a lot of contemporary books and I don't get around to stuff that I really want to read that is, you know, I can't interview the author because they're dead or they're too famous or whatever it is. Uh, and so what I'm going to do is, is, is once a month and might as well make it, what are we at, the third, uh, third week, you know, something like this is like the third uh, episode of the month. Um, try maybe I'll be regular about it and just do a solo show. Sometimes I'll just read something and riff on it like a college lecture or sometimes I'll talk about my own life. Today I'm going to do some more reflection on my own experience like I uh, did last fall after going to Burning Man and uh, did a show that people really, really liked where I talked about my experiences and a little bit about my, my history and thoughts about the, the festival. And that's also just a partly a way for me to uh, use this medium to explore my own experience. I don't, I'm one of those people, I don't think about my past that often. I mean, I'm very aware of where I've come from and the kinds of influences I've, I've taken on for better and to some degree for worse. Uh, but I, I honor them all. And that, in that sense, I'm very, a very historical creature and I spend a lot of time thinking about history. But my own personal history, I don't necessarily mull over very much. I, I kind of have a drop it all, you know, lean forward uh, attitude towards things. And, and it's, 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 a, it's effective to do. It's actually, a, you know, it's an interesting practice to reflect if you're not one of those uh, people. And I also realize that especially as I get older and more and more people who are listening to me are younger than me, they haven't had the kinds of experiences I have. They didn't come from my, the world that I came from, the world that shaped me. So it's also kind of interesting just to uh, get a little a snapshot of uh, uh, what life and experience uh, could be in uh, earlier uh, decades. So uh, to that uh, end, um, this uh, week's show will be devoted to uh, meditation, but there's the meditation is in scare quotes, you know, like in, in you know, when, when postmodern philosophers are talking and they talk about authenticity and they have to put quotation marks around it because they want to show you that they don't really believe what that means. I'm not trying to do that about meditation. I think meditation is real. But I do want to kind of announce from the get-go that one of the interesting things about meditation is it's not exactly clear where you draw the boundaries. What is meditation and what is non-meditation? And who's making that determination? Are you making that determination? Is it something you read is making that determination? Is it a specific practice tradition that you're involved in that's making uh, that distinction? And I, and I say that because I'm interested in certain kinds of mind practices that can resemble meditation that maybe take us in directions that maybe really aren't what most people would consider meditation. Um, and I'm thinking here particularly of the nebulous category 
of trance. Uh, now, what does trance mean? It depends who you talk to. You can ask a psychiatrist. They might have one answer, talk about hypnotism and the physiological signs that someone's in a hypnotic state, although other people criticize the very concept of hypnotism and say something else is going on. But if you ask, ask an anthropologist, they say, oh, yeah, you know, you go to a possession ritual in you know, Port-au-Prince or, or in, in, in Gabon or whatever. And, you know, there's going to be things that people go into that are like trance, but it's partly a, a social thing. It's something that happens that the culture allows or culture creates a construct for uh, that will change in different sort of cultures. So it's not like it's a fixed physiological state. It's something else, you know, and you might talk about dissociation with a psychologist or derealization. I mean, there's a lot of strange things that cluster together, and that's because consciousness is not linear. Consciousness is best thought of as a kind of phase state. What is phase state? Phase state means a state of possibilities where there are multiple dimensions and that the, any given point on it is located within this spectral array, a three-dimensional or multi-dimensional spectral array. So it's not like over here is meditation and then you jump over uh, uh, this chasm and wind up in trance. It's much more like knobs and wires and, and, and knobs turning in all directions as you sort of uh, explore this phase space, phase space with your mind. So uh, when you go to sleep is a great example. My wife, Jennifer Dumper, is coming out uh, with her book on liminal dreaming uh, about the same time that High Weirdness comes out in, in late spring. It just sort of worked out that way. Uh, and she talks a lot about this, this space of liminal dreaming, not the REM dreams that we're familiar with, not the lucid dreaming that everybody gets obsessed with, but rather the space between waking and sleeping, the space that we move through as we go to sleep. And usually it just goes by really quickly, but if we begin to pay attention to it and open it up and, and learn to listen and navigate and extend that space, we discover this remarkable uh, a range of experiences that exist in a liminal zone in between waking and, and sleeping on the way from one to the other as part of a spectral exploration, not black and white, not you're sleeping or you're waking. It's somewhere in between. And that in-between mind exists like in every direction from wherever you are in your meditation. <laughs> you know, you can go down into this, you can go to the right, into that, you can go up into that, you can go in, you can go out. All these different directions are available. And I think far too often people think about meditation as a kind of a technique that you just keep reiterating. And that's part of it for sure. But at the same time, you are in a a complex nexus of thought and sensation and awareness and memory uh, and habit and whatever, the spirit. And you're at a particular zone and you can begin to move in multiple directions. And it's in that uh, spirit that I want to kind of talk about this zone at the edge of meditation where it becomes a little bit more like trance, a little bit more like a kind of, I don't want to say self-hypnotism because that sounds too much like a technique. So let's just start telling stories. I was a teenage stoner. I was one of those kids. I grew up in Southern California. One time I had this very striking experience. I met, I was at a table with a couple other people. I didn't know that well. And uh, it turned out that, that both of the dudes also grew up in California. And I asked this question. I said, what 
age were you at that was the weirdest year of your life? And all of us, all of us said 14. <laughs> so there was something about being kind of our generation and being a, a, a teenager in California in the like 70s, early 80s, because we were slightly different ages, that had a, a high weirdness factor that was remarkable. So as part of this array of exploration, which included psychedelics and weed and uh, magic and studying tarot and quote-unquote meditation was quote-unquote meditation. Now, I'm not going to say what I was doing back then was or was not meditation. I'm sure there are many meditation teachers who say, nah, that really wasn't meditation. But I'll just tell you what I did. Uh, I had a little altar in my room. I've always had altars. I think having altars is a really important part of uh, a balanced uh, psychic breakfast. It's a great excuse for art for those of us who do not think of ourselves as artists. And it's a, a space to always remind you in your domestic mundane environments of the other dimensions and beings and inspirations and experiences that have shaped uh, the less mundane sides of ourselves. And so I had a little altar and at the, 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 the center of the altar was a stone lawn Buddha, you know, like a Buddha you would buy at a garden store. Although this particular Buddha, who still lives with me, was not purchased. It was actually, well, stolen. And it was stolen from somebody's lawn by my uh, uh, grade school friend known as Senzo Joe, as in Sensimia. And Senzo Joe was, you know, he was a bit of a partier, a bit of a bit of a character, a bit of a mischief maker. And for my birthday, for my 13th birthday, he stole me a Buddha. So there's the Buddha sitting on my altar. And I would use, I used to sit and kind of, again, quote unquote, meditate before the Buddha, you know, following my breath and also trancing out and also, well, smoking some weed. And because it was my bedroom, I couldn't really load up a whole bowl and I certainly wasn't going to break out the bong. So I'd scrape like a little bit of the resin from the pipe and just have these tiny little single resin puffs. So it was a very small amount of cannabis, but it was certainly enough to get a lot of stuff rolling. So one time I was, uh, I did a lot of staring. So one time I was staring at the Buddha uh, in this kind of altered state. And, you know, I was starting to kind of hum and vibrate in a sense of like a slightly more juicy, um, resonant world was opening up a little more of a dreamlike uh, sensation, nothing extreme. And then in my visual impression, the Buddha, whose eyes I were kind of, whose closed eyes I was looking at, the Buddha's just popped open his eyes. Boom. Woohoo. That was a nice taste. What do you do with stuff like that? I don't know. At the time, I just thought, hey, this is fun. Something's working. Let's check it out. Let's keep going. Uh, a similar experiment, and this one I, I, I think is, it was actually quite significant, and I still don't know exactly how to think about it, but it was very distinct, and it really opened up something. It allowed something in my own evolving imagination, and I'll, I'll, maybe I'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, I was outside of my um, bedroom. There was a little po a covered porch and it was raining, just like actually it's raining today uh, here in the Bay Area. And it was raining and I was sitting on the porch and I was, you know, I don't remember exactly whether I had had another one of my resin hits, but probably. Uh, and I was sitting there and I was meditating and I was focusing on the... Uh, uh, the, the, the space between my eyes, my third eye. And so I'm kind of focused on that zone, putting attention on it. 
feeling it, you know, feeling the stony space opening up, a little resonance, a little vibrating, the, the same kind of, you know, tr- kind of plugged in feeling. And there was a drip uh, coming off the, the, the porch roof. Boop, doop, doop, doop. And so I was just kind of tuning into my third eye and sort of listening to this doop, doop, doop. And then I was like, okay, well, maybe I'm going to switch my attention to another chakra, you know, because I knew about the chakras because I was grew up in like a hippie zone. And it wasn't because I had any great teaching from some Hindu master. It was just part of popular culture. You knew about the chakras the way you knew about tarot. You knew a little bit about witchcraft. You know, it was just that sea of, of a culture uh, that I grew up in and, and really absorbed a lot from. So I knew something about the chakras and I was like, so I, I moved my attention to, you know, either my heart or my, or my gut. I don't remember which one I did, uh, you know, somewhere down there. I don't even think I was that exact about it, but I moved it down my spine significantly. And I noticed that the tone, the overtone of the drip changed. So if my third eye was doop, 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 Doop. I brought it down to my solar plexus, let's say, and it was doop, doop, doop. And I went, whoa, that's weird. So I just sat there and like went up and down the scales, if you will, noticing this different variation. And I still think it's kind of a wonderful expression, not of the truth of the chakras, but of the way that one's own imaginative, imaginal map, not meaning just fantasy, but the, the map that you construct of your own body, as particularly in meditative states and psychedelic states as well, but the map that you internally construct that has its own plasticity, its own uh, 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 kind of interactive um, life to it, uh, actually shapes your experience. Like as that map evolves and changes and gets uh, feedback from experience and so becomes more coherent, more crystallized or more open-ended, more multidimensional, that that map itself directly shapes your experience. And I, you know, I wasn't thinking that way exactly at the time, but I didn't think, oh, well, I've discovered the secret truth about the chakras Instead, it was a way of, again, kind of exploring a space that was sort of between meditation and trance and cannabis, which is pretty good for trance, okay for meditation, definitely part of the picture, uh, at least for me then, not so much these days. I don't really, I enjoy cannabis in a consciousness expanding way, but I don't use it as part of formal uh, meditation, haven't for many, many years. And I'll leave you with uh, one more story from this, uh, this period of time, the, the weird era of, uh, you know, lucid dreams and meeting witches. And it's a long story. <laughs> it was a curious time, uh, born again Christianity, the, the, the whole thing. We'll get to it some other day. But um, the third one was the most remarkable and the one that in some ways probably influenced the course of my life uh, the most. And that was, again, I was sitting in front of the, uh, the, uh, the, the stolen lawn Buddha. And, you know, in some kind of meditative, trancey zone, a vibrating hum, pleasant, uh, not too chattery, but probably a little stoned. And then 
Suddenly, with uh, a great deal of clarity, as if a television was being turned on, I, quote-unquote, tuned into a signal. Now, that's a metaphor, tuned into a signal. What does that mean? You're in meditation, you hear a voice in your head. Tuned into a signal is just only one way of describing it. You could also say, I heard a voice in my head, uh, which has more negative overtones in our society. Uh, But at the time, the very experience of it came already packaged in that story of tuning into a signal. And what the signal I tuned into also came with a kind of packaged narrative was a voice, but not a human voice or even a personal voice, not even the voice of an entity, but rather the voice of what seemed to be well, a satellite or some kind of weird technological object, perhaps floating in deep space. It wasn't really clear. And the message is it did have a verbal message, a kind of content with it that was, and I can't really remember the details, but it was like, God is love. Love is everywhere. The universe is a lattice of God. You are part of the lattice of God. Something like that, like this sort of a kind of repetitive signal that was not a person. No no one was talking to me. I had tuned into a broadcast signal that was in some sense mechanical. And it was quite a remarkable experience. It, I noticed it like, wow, this is super weird. It didn't feel like uh, some voice of God. I, I had already been doing psychedelics, so I was aware that very peculiar things can happen to you and that it, it's probably best to to I- investigate it with a kind of uh, passive, mildly skeptical uh, frame of mind, which was pretty much what I brought to it. And then as that, you know, and so, somehow by tuning into it, I kind of got a better sense that it was some kind of craft in the heavens or in cosmos or something like that, maybe physical, I didn't know, but something like a like a satellite. Uh, and then it just as abruptly shut off. Again, it didn't like fade. It didn't build to a crescendo. It was like turning off a television set. And the reason I bring this up is like, yeah, it's a weird experience. You know, we've all, a lot of us, you know, if, we, if we're honest with ourselves, if we remember, because a lot of times these things happen to people and they just forget, they don't have anywhere to put them. Where do you put that? Is that a vision? Is it a religious experience? Is it psychosis? Is it just weed? You know, it's hard to put these things places. And unless you're already really interested in them, you tend to just kind of forget about them. I'm sure there's there's hundreds of probably more mellow, but still remarkably curious experiences, synchronicities, intuitions, dreams that I've forgotten uh, over the years. But this one, I remember. And I remembered it partly because it was so striking and it had this kind of science fictional quality. Since that time, I've come across a few other accounts of these kinds of experiences. Uh, Jack Sarfati, for one, has has an, a kind of version of this, I think, over the telephone in the 1950s when he's growing up or something. And I've had one interviewer, uh, my great uh, friend Mark Pilkington, who is going to be publishing High Weirdness in the Spring. Uh, when he When we first met, he was interviewing me about technosis uh, and he asked me about this. Somehow he, he intuited that I had some kind of weird sci-fi experience, but it makes sense because when I look back at like my total obsession for many, many years with Philip K. Dick's work and the fact that I'm still writing and thinking about him now after you know tw- over 20 years of reading his work, part of it is that that core Vallis zone 
is very resonant with the kinds of experiences that I had. And I had the, that experience probably in 1981, 82. So, you know, Vallis itself came out in 1981. So there's some kind of weird, even though I wasn't, it's not like I'm in the, his neighborhood or anything, but I am in Southern California. He was still alive. Uh, that there's some kind of resonating, there's something there, some kind of deeper pattern, whether it's in literature, whether it's in culture, whether it's in the extraterrestrial civilization, whether whatever it is, there's some kind of deeper pattern that, that this trance-like experience uh, set in motion and that made me more interested in these things later on when I discovered them. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people who spend you know, an inordinate amount of their time thinking about weird things is that if you dig down into your own memories, uh, your own experiences as a child, whether it's a dream or a, 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 a fantasy, a daydream, a strange encounter, a, a, a illustrated nursery book, um, some odd thing you can't even remember whether it really happened to you or not. I think a lot of us have these things sort of lurking in childhood and that they set in motion shapes and encounters that we that we later on iterate uh, in our lives. Uh, looking at Philip K. Dick's life and reading his letters in particularly, you really get this sense that, that like his uh, famous fish sign encounter in, uh, in 1974 that sets in motion a lot of the Vallis stuff um, he, he even thinks back to earlier times when he was a kid and advertisements he saw that had a fish in them. And, you know, you start to see the way that he came to believe that he was already kind of programmed to recognize the fish symbol when he finally saw it on the delivery woman in 1974 because he had earlier been exposed to these other fish uh, images. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. You can also say that the earlier first you know, fish images to set up the capacity to have that kind of conversion moment, even if there wasn't actually a signal or anybody really communicating that or it's something else in the mind or the unconscious. Uh, you don't have to make his kind of conclusion about it. But the, the story, I think, is really, uh, you know, really to the point. So what does all this have to do with meditation? This doesn't really sound like meditation now, does it? Well, here, here we'll throw out a little bit of uh, technical stuff. Um, one of the simplest ways and probably, I think, most illuminating, illuminating ways to make a distinction within, you know, capital M meditation practices. Now we're leaving aside the trancey stoner stuff and going towards uh, real deal, you know, official in the books kind of meditation practices. Uh, one of the, the core distinctions is between what people call shamatha and vipassana. And I won't go into the history of what these terms are. They mean different things in different contexts. People mean different things by them today when they use them. But I'm going to use them for as a shorthand for something that a lot of meditation teachers and traditions recognize, which is that there is a, a, a distinct phenomenological difference between two different aspects of meditation or potential aspects of meditation. Because as I'll say, you can emphasize one uh, or the other, and can even sort of exclusively focus on one or the other. So they're, they're not necessarily always in the picture, although ultimately they do interact. So shamatha we can think of in terms of concentration, settling, calming, focus, uh, uh, a sort of, I experience it as a kind of melting into presence, a kind of sense of a deeper continuity that can be extremely relaxing and, by the way, extremely pleasurable. We'll get to that. 
Vipassana, which people have more likely heard because it's sort of the name for uh, one school or set of schools, one, one approach uh, to meditation, uh, is, is what we could think of as insight. This is a slightly more cognitive uh, experience. It is more, um, and more has to do with tracking, with noting, with paying attention to the shifting, to the shifting nature of phenomena. Things arise, things r- remain while changing, and things disappear. And bringing the mind to that sort of constant arising and falling of thoughts and impressions and sensations and fluctuations of energy, that attention to that is vipassana and can lead to states of insight, particularly in a Buddhist context, into the insight that of impermanence, where it's not just a concept anymore. I am literally phenomenologically perceiving the way that absolutely everything comes and goes. So from a certain uh, Buddhist perspective, a certain kind of orthodox perspective even, that, that's what's key. So much so that some schools of Vipassana, including the, the initial influences over American Vipassana or insight meditation, certain schools of Vipassana are only interested in Vipassana and are explicitly not interested in shamatha and think that shamatha or concentration practices, calming practices, vibrating practices, even those somewhat delicious practices, well, we'll get to, um, is, is actually a waste of time. That's sort of changing now. People are kind of opening up to both. I was always a concentration guy. It probably doesn't surprise you uh, very much. What did that mean? It meant I spent a lot of time resting my attention on one object, and that object was the breath, and it was particularly the breath resting in my hara, in my second chakra, in the uh, sort of two inches below the, the, uh, the, the navel inside space, um, and which is very important in martial arts. It's like one of the core energetic points in the body. To me, it's, uh, it's the place to go. If you don't have, if you don't got that, you know, got much, in my view. I mean, that's, that's gotten me through emotional upheavals. It's gotten me through terrifying psychedelic experiences. It's gotten me through a lot, just being able to be deeply, deeply in touch with that particular part of the body, particularly as it becomes the site of the rising and falling of the breath. So, um, little side note, we'll get back to this in a second. Um, uh, I just, Discovered Buddhism in a personal way. I'd read Buddhist books or whatever, but I was in India and I ran into uh, uh, Michael Roach, who is uh, became quite a renegade tantric character later in his career, but at this point was a uh, a beaming, goofy uh, monk, and had a sort of childlike quality to him and a, a strange, mischievous glimmer in his eyes. And I, I really connect with him. I met him when I was, uh, my wife and I, Jennifer and I, were traveling in India, and we went to a Sarame monastery because I had heard that they had a, um, uh, that they were inputting uh, the the Buddhist text, Tibetan text from the woodblocks directly into the computer. And this was the early 1990s, so stuff like that was still kind of groovy. Uh, and I did end up writing a story for Wired Magazine about this uh, Asian classics input project, as it was called. And it was headed up by none other than Michael Roach, who was, been, was in India at the time. It was at the Sarame Monastery uh, down near uh, Mysore in Karnataka. 
And so we just showed up. We didn't have any connections. Showed up, kind of wandered around. Finally met the guy. You know, we started talking, and he had this this twinkly eyed thing. And so we talked about science fiction. We talked about mescaline. Uh, you know, uh, cyberspace, William Gibson. So I was like, oh, this guy's pretty cool. And then he gave me a book by Tsongkhapa, who's like the great sort of, uh, you know, he's like the Thomas Aquinas of the Galupa school that um, Michael Roach was a part of. And I, I took this book and I'd read other, you know, kind of Zen texts and stuff, but I hadn't really read like serious Buddhist philosophy. And this book just sparkled my brain it was like a little diamond light in inside of my cognition and really changed my trip and when i got back to new york i started to practice with michael roach and went up and learned a lot of um, uh, the basics of uh you know madhyamaka prasangika and you know ways of thinking about the nature of reality and i liked all that stuff um but they had us doing these these tibetan preliminary meditations these lam rim you know meditations where it was very structured you start out you think you're about you're going to die and how the only thing that's going to help you help you you're going to die is the dharma and so then you turn the dharma and you feel happy that you've met a teacher and then you think cool things about the teacher and then you know and it was this sort of graded like like protocol, a kind of algorithm that you were supposed to instantiate over and over again. I found this incredibly tedious. Uh, and not only tedious, just it was just, I couldn't do it. It was just like, it was too much mind. It was too much of a map. So then I was kind of stuck. And I started hunting for other meditation places. I like meditating with people. I felt I needed to be around other people and learn, get some formal training. And I discovered a, a, a Zendo in, uh, near Washington Square that was run by a... Uh, a, uh, uh, a lesbian media f- media scholar at NYU. I know, like, it works for me, that kind of stuff. So uh, what I loved about Zen, or at least the way they practiced it there, where they didn't, they didn't do koan, though koans were kind of in the picture. It wasn't like a, a real focus on koan study. And there wasn't like a super master there. She was running the place. Uh, you know, she's still teaching uh, today, uh, uh, Pat Enkyo O'Hara. Um, and... Uh, uh, but they just left me alone, shut up and sit, staring at a wall. Nobody told me what to do, and so I could do what I wanted. So I started following my breath at my hara, at the Dantian. And I did this for years and years and years. Now here's where we come back again to this point about quote-unquote meditation and uh, especially concentration work and how, it de- how exactly it divides from states that we might think of as trance. Because I didn't even really know what I was doing. I didn't know that this was shamatha. I didn't know that concentration was only a certain way of doing meditation and that there were different ways of doing it. This is just what I did. And over the years, I believe that what I was partly doing was getting really good at putting myself in a trance. It doesn't mean that there wasn't meditative self-reflection. But it meant that once I was able to keep my mind on an object steadily, then that very process itself started to open up other things, other vibrational experiences, a kind of liquid, gooey, warm, quicksand feeling, a sort of bubbling up of the unconscious even, and a a sort of melting into this space. there were maybe elements of dullness to it in uh, Tibetan uh, Buddhist 
meditation uh, manuals and teachings, they often warn you away from what they call subtle dullness. This is the sense that even as you're resting successfully on your meditation object, on your breath, for example, and you're you're not too distracted, you're not thinking about lunch, you're not thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow, you're like, in with the breath, you're like, I'm on it, great, ka-ching, made it. But lurking in the corners is this subtle dullness, the sense that actually there's kind of a fuzz over the whole thing and you're, and you're kind of a little bit asleep. And this is warned against. And this is the warning I'm really not sure what to do with. Uh, on, some, on some levels, I think it's incredibly important to honor and yet, in other ways, I think it's very interesting to go down, let us say, to sink into the hypnotic uh, stew and kind of move around, see what's, see what's down there, see, see what, what things lie for you there. I was not necessarily prepared for everything that lies for me there, uh, and maybe I still uh, am not quite prepared for it. Because I had some pretty weird experiences, visionary experiences, psychedelic experiences. In fact, in some ways, I think that my interest, continuing interest in psychedelics has been because I know that at some level, the things that arise in that zone, both the, the, the sense of the marvelous, the sense of cosmic dimensionality, the sense that there are other entities, and some of them are light beings and angelic, and some of them are dark and witchy and spooky and creepy and even demonic that that whole space is something that I know lies in my mind even without psychedelics. And I know that not just in principle, but I know that in practice. I know that from experience. There was one particular period of, of my practice, I would say I was probably three or four years into serious meditation, had already done a bunch of Zen retreats. And in retrospect, I realized I really was just sinking down and down, just the way they when they induct a hypnotic state. Ah, oh, you're going down, down, down. You're climbing down a ladder. You're climbing down the stairs, down, 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 down into the woods, down, down, down. Then there's like a, a castle or something waiting for you down there. And I'm I'm very hypnotizable. I, I like the ride. Uh, I don't need to be guided. Just get me in the down, 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 and I'm good to go. So in a way, I was doing that, and I started to kind of get this sense of like a spookiness, kind of like, kind of like graveyards at midnight kind of vibe, kind of, uh, you know, witches cackling through the wind sort of energy and going, whoa, that's, that's super weird. That's super weird. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I'd get kind of explore that a little bit, and it felt, you know, kind of interesting, you know, a little compelling. And it was around this time... That one night I was in, uh, I was sitting in, um, in, a, in Zendo, you know, it was like four, fourth day in of a session, room full of sitters, quiet, still, focused. And I'm in there, you know, very, very little extra thought going on, riding the vibe, awake, clear. And suddenly it becomes totally obvious to me, like in a way I can't describe, not just a thought, not just a possibility, not just a fear, but a knowledge, a clear and distinct knowledge that the earth was ringed by uh, demonic entities that were going to eat our souls upon death, and there was absolutely nothing we could do about it. That was just the nature of the world, was that we were just 
going through our little soul lives and they were just going to, you know, consume the whole kit and caboodle upon death. And it was completely obvious to me. And it was also obvious that this sort of state of focused attention that everybody else was was uh, developing was a way of kind of bringing on <laughs> or, or, you know, kind of connecting with these, these, these entities. Now, needless to say, this is a kind of scary experience and, and uh, not unlike the, uh, the, the satellite uh, of love uh, experience earlier, has a slightly psychotic overlay or at least a kind of break from the normal. Um, and not that I had, was psychotic in any long, you know, un- ongoing sense, but there was a distinct hallucinatory experience that felt realer than real that clearly doesn't really fit exactly into uh, conventional um, symbolic reality. And what was interesting about this, how, how did I react to this at this point? So I became, of course, freaked out and somewhat terrified. And again, I couldn't not believe the thought. I couldn't not believe that this was actually true. I couldn't go, wow, I'm, this is a weird idea, or, or even this is a crazy hallucination. But something in me, and again, something I actually think has more to do with drugs than anything else, something in me knew that the thing to do was to just kind of not feed the fuel to the fire, just hold on, and things are going to change. Just, just wait, you're going to come down. Something like that, some basic you're going to come down sanity impulse. And so rather than maintaining my meditation object, I started to like, you know, sing like show tunes in my head, like da, 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 you know, just to like totally take away the trance. You know, I wanted to get back to monkey mind as fast as possible. So I got back to monkey mind. Everything was fine. I talked about it with some teachers. They said, yeah, this kind of stuff happens to people sometimes. And that's, that's something you find out too. You like do, do meditation and particularly if you do concentration work. If you spend time with shamatha, and I've, I've done other concentration retreats, and though I've never had anything as freaky as that happen, I have had entities, uh, senses of good and evil, uh, delicious uh, full-body quasi-orgasmic bliss states, uh, rich, rich colored lights, a uh, sense of moving into other dimensions. A lot of the kinds of earmarks of psychedelic experience have happened to me on occasion uh, doing concentration. And that's just something that happens at least to some of us. Some people aren't that drawn to concentration. It doesn't work for them quite as well. Some of us, perhaps the same people who are have a predilection for uh, you know, uh, abduction experiences or who are easily hypnotizable, I'm not sure, I don't know the data, but there are some, you know, cognitive signs that show you lean certain directions. And within the context of meditation, this is something that is on the path for some of us, these kinds of experiences. And it's kind of funny because it's not in the guidebooks. It's not, you know, you go to the store, oh, meditation for beginners. They're not going to talk about this very much. But it's the kind of thing like you bring it up to the teacher in the teaching room, like, hey, I had this experience. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, don't worry about that. It happens a lot. So it's like there's like almost a kind of esotericism inside the meditation teacher racket where they'll acknowledge just how weird things can get um and weird in a way that again makes the connection between psychedelics and deep spiritual practice more rich and interesting not because psychedelics are the same thing but that there is some kind of commonality in the experience and that i believe that actually practicing with psychedelics can help you navigate these other states uh better for one thing you're less likely to take them as reality 
I mean, if you're just meditating on the natch, you've never done drugs, and you like suddenly think that demons are going to eat your soul, that's going to really, really freak your shit. But if you're, if you're like, well, you know, the mind is very powerful uh, narrative creator. You know, it's, it's able to develop all sorts of marvelous and, and sometimes terrifying scenarios. Just let's just hang with it. Let's just uh, keep our feet on the ground as best we can. So I think it actually kind of uh, helps the situation. Um, and, and so all of this is to say that, that particularly when we're talking about concentration practices, particularly when we're talking about uh, the settling aspect of, uh, uh, and the quieting the mind aspect and the opening up to the, the subtle dimensions of experience, both the experience of your body, the experience of your breath, your experience of the environment you're in, of the sounds, of the way the sounds evoke other dimensions of the self, subconscious, cosmos, who knows? That there's something in that where even the question of what meditation is, uh, is kind of up for grabs. And, and you know who gets to determine it? You do. You do. And I think it's extremely important at a particular, once you've kind of gotten your feet wet, once you've gotten stabilized to a degree with meditation, and you might need to just do a lot of work to get there. It might take you a couple of years. It's kind of a hassle. I wish there, maybe the technology can help people. I, I don't know. I have my doubts. But once you've kind of gotten to a stable position, I think there's a really important decision that everybody gets to make. And that is whether you bring structures of external authority with you into your voyage or whether you leave them at the door. I believe you should leave them at the door. Now, conservatives, orthodox people, meditation teachers, I don't know, no, no, you got to keep it on. Otherwise, you know, subtle dullness or you'll get caught in this and you'll get lost in that and you'll lose the opportunity for this and whatever. There's plenty of people to say the other thing. So I'm just kind of pulling in the other direction, which you could think of as the chaos direction. Um, and that at a certain point, you, your very decision to allow an authority, even, a, even an injunction, Always stay awake. Don't think, don't follow your thoughts. Uh, let the thoughts go. Uh, return to the object. Even the basic elements that get you there can become uh, distorting. And they particularly can distort away from surprise, novelty, the unknown, the other, the beyond, the outside. All of that sticky, gooey, who knows what the F it is uh, material that I think is part of what we're doing. And I'll, and I'll say all this in a slightly, in a more pragmatic way as well, uh, which as I've mentioned a couple times in the show, uh, I don't know why I like to bring it up, but so what. Um, I, you know, I have insomnia sometimes. I wake up in the middle of the night, can't sleep, mind's buzzing, you know, dread, taxes, death, whatever. It's like, oh God, this thing again. I can't get back to sleep. So what do I do? So I get up and I sit. I'm just like 3.30 in the morning. Perfect time to sit. I love it. And I really sit. You know, my mind's active. So I'm, I can stay with the meditation object or I can 
you know, melt into a sense of presence or I can attend to the arising and falling of phenomena. And I do different things and I don't always know what I'm going to do when I sit down. It just sort of starts and I, you know, something begins to happen and I go, oh, well, I'll pay attention to that. And then that becomes a feedback loop. And so I can use the, the objects to kind of drive the direction as I explore this phase state uh, of possibility and develop that nimbleness, the ability to move in different directions rather than following a rigid uh, algorithmic injunction, return to the breath, return to the breath, return to the breath, or whatever it is. And, you know, so I'm kind of lazy in some ways, kind of sloppy in some ways, but, you know, it's a different, it's a different thing. Anyway, there I am. Meditating, 3.30 in the morning, it's great. Sometimes, sometimes you're amazed at how noisy your mind is even when everybody else is asleep and there's no street noise or anything. Uh, and then at the end, I'm like, oh, I'm going to, oh, wait, I, oh, I can get, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get sleepy. Come on, subtle dullness, bring it on. Sink me down, drag me into the unconscious, heavy, sloggy, well, ready to go to bed. And then I go to bed and then I almost invariably have remarkable, delicious dreams. I wake up with this scrumptious feeling of renewal. And, I'm, and I've been able to learn to do that. The reason I'm bringing it up is that might work for you. It might not. Depend. We're all so different in some ways. But the reason I bring that up is that I had to kind of go against my own ideas about what meditation is for. I had to kind of break the rules to discover my capacity to heal myself and to heal this irritating part of my mind um, by being willing to, to navigate between the kind of meditative mind with its commitment to awakeness and alertness and and uh, a sharp, sharp degree of awareness and being willing to give up that clarity and to sink and to swim in the unconscious, in the dream, to go on a liminal dreaming zone as I went back to bed and all seems good to me, you know, all seems fine to me. And so I, I'm kind of you know, winding up with this pragmatic example because it, it it's more obvious why that could be a positive thing. But I think it applies on a on a broader level, which is that it's, you know, I don't think you can be a meditator without committing to boring, iterative practice. I can't, I don't think you can do it without years of bringing the mind back to the breath, bringing the mind back to the Dantian, bringing the mind back to the present moment, bringing the mind back to the sounds that are happening, you know, all the different kinds of objects that can help stabilize the mind. You need to do that, that kind of work, and it can take you a very long time. I'm not really sure what motivated me, um, but here's, if, you're, if you're someone who wants to meditate and, and have tried and it doesn't work, or you can't stick with it because it's just too boring or too frustrating. And there's a lot of people in that category. You know, and if you go to the, again, you go to the straight meditation teachers, they'll say, oh, well, just stick with it. And then you'll, you get the rewards down the line. And it is true, not just contemplation and insight, but good feelings. And that's the secret. What I'd say is meditation is a bad way to get high, but it's also not a bad way to get high. And I say that in the sense that there, you can bring your hedonism on board. That if you continue to do this while feeling good and feeling blissed out is not the goal. And at some point becomes an impediment to the goal. I think there is not enough emphasis given to beginning meditators on just how yummy, fun, 
interesting, provocative, uh, and aesthetically enhancing meditation can be. And that to bring that on means not only to think, oh, in the future, if I just keep doing this tedious job of returning to my breath, I'll finally get to this other place. It means that right from where you start, you can start to enjoy. Bring enjoyment on board. Be willing from the beginning to notice that even when you slightly calm that chattering monkey mind and, and begin to settle into your belly, let's say, there's a warmth there. It's kind of yummy. It tastes good. It's a little like hot chocolate or something. And when you find those, when you find those little hints of yumminess, the hint of yumminess becomes the thing what you're paying attention to, not necessarily your breath, not necessarily, you know, coming back to counting numbers, but like that weird kind of yummy intuitive sense I have down in my, in my gut somewhere or whatever it might be. And when you let those then become your meditation objects, you start to have a feedback experience. And then they say, ah, oh, wait, I'm getting paid attention to. Oh, wait, I'm going to stick around a little bit more. And they open and open and open again over weeks, over months, over years of doing this kind of work. But if you have that feedback idea, it gives you a kind of navigable way to, to let the objects that stabilize your meditation change. And you can use those different objects to navigate the space. And you can use those that navigation to navigate towards things that feel good because if you feel good you're going to do it more you're going to get better at it it's going to open up for you it's going to flower and maybe someday down the line you're going to have to wrestle with that wow you know i've been using meditation to get high for a couple of years now i don't know how good that is anymore because there's a lot of other things to do i'm not going to talk about them now because i'm winding up but uh, that in a way, that's a problem for once you're a meditator. But if you're not yet a meditator, don't meditate because you should meditate. Don't meditate because it's going to help your career. Don't meditate. Even I don't believe you should meditate because like it's going to like make you more controlled over your emotions or something or less likely to spin out. I mean, maybe it is. And maybe that is a good reason. I mean, it certainly helped me. Um, but I think it's a really good idea to start weaving enjoyment into it from the get-go just because it keeps you doing it. And once you start to open up the, the deeper levels of enjoyment, and in fact, there's a whole technical language of the jhanas, which are these stages of meditation that are discovered or opened up through concentration practices, through shamatha or you know, a cons uh, that sort of resting, uh, stabilizing mind. There's these whole series of of stages that are described in the literature and and by you know meditation teachers who are vastly more sophisticated than I am um, that have to do at least initially with uh, extreme experiences sometimes of, of bliss and of energy moving through the body and things that are familiar also to people from certain psychedelics not the same thing but not entirely different in my opinion uh and that so there that's that's like you know in the future <laughs> if you want to work towards that that's not a bad thing to work for for the time being for the time being don't meditate out of a sense of ascesis you might have to do it out of a sense of discipline and i think that kind of discipline 
is pretty terrific, even though I've never been great on it. I've never been a totally daily sitter. I've always been like slightly less than a daily sitter, a daily sitter or until it's kind of inconvenient or until I was I got up that day and I needed to start working and I never got around to it. And so I always felt bad about, oh, I'm a crappy sitter. I don't sit every day like all the you know, the type A's I know, the alphas, you know, oh, I said every day, 45 minutes, da, 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 boom, 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 you know, I'm like, great, you can be that. But I'm not that guy. And so though I am, I am no meditation master, I am not a stream enterer, I have not, uh, you know, broken through some kind of selfless awareness or something. I've had a lot of amazing experiences and it's enriched in my life. That's all I can say. Uh, but you can take me as a model that you don't have to, you can be a little sloppier, you can be a little messier, you can be a little more hedonistic about it, you can be a little bit more just exploratory about it and stuff will start to happening and then you're on your own trip and in the, in the end of the day, that's who's having it. It's your own treasure. It's your own pot of gold. That's what Maizumi Roshi said. I He was my first Zen master. And I was only able to practice with him for a little while before he died. I think we had, I had two sessions with him. So we didn't have a very deep relationship. But the thing that stuck with me that he said was not something he said in a, in a, talk, a Dharma talk or, or in, a, in an interview, per, private interview with me. We were just sitting around with a couple other people and, and he just kind of talked, we were talking about meditation. He, he's saying, yes, you know, you just stick with it and you'll have this pot of gold. And he kind of referred to his dantian, to his belly. You have this pot of gold that you can rely on for the rest of your life. And there was something about the way he said that and I was like, yeah, he knows what he's talking about. And I can tell you that now I know what he was talking about. And so uh, don't feel bad about pursuing that, uh, that pot of gold. All right, until next week, keep your minds open. 